Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. This episode, I'm very happy to bring the conversation I had with Manun Garcia. Manun is a junior professor of practical philosophy at Fry University in Berlin. She has her PhD in philosophy. She's also done many fellowships at Harvard, University of Chicago, and has been an assistant professor of philosophy at Yale. Uh, much of her primary research is in political philosophy, feminist philosophy, moral philosophy, and philosophy of social sciences. She is the author of a few books, including the most recent, The Joy of Consent, A Philosophy of Good Sex, uh, which first came out in French uh, in 2021, and then the English uh, translation is uh, just out. And it's interesting, as we talk about in the beginning of the conversation, uh, she really sees this as kind of writing the same book twice, um, but uh, different. She's writing it, uh, she wrote it in French first, and, you know, there's a particular audience there, and then writing it kind of again in English, and and she basically said it was (laughs) a different book. So it's it's very, very interesting. And we have a fabulous conversation. I absolutely uh, really enjoyed this conversation, um, much because I was able to uh, learn a lot of things from her. She's quite brilliant. But also because we were able to engage in kind of the very tough uh, topics uh, about sexual consent in a really uh, honest way, in a way that was uh, exploratory and thinking out loud and trying to figure out how to make sense of these things. Uh, she's she's absolutely uh, a wonderful interlocutor for, for many of these uh, topics. Uh, we talk about what is consent? How do we define that? We talk about legal and moral consent. We talk about qualitative sex and consensual sex. We talk about power, responsibility, and gender norms. Uh, We talk about consent out of politeness, reciprocal pleasure, consent in marriage, sex as a conversation, and many more uh, topics. Uh, As I said, it really was um, a big, big pleasure to uh, talk with her. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I think this conversation is really important. I think the work she's doing is important. And my hope is that this conversation is, you know, in a sense, a type of, um, you know, model of, of how tough conversations or conversations about kind of tricky subjects can be had, um, even publicly. And I think uh, she comes from a, a really good place. I certainly do as well. And, and again, she's just um, wonderful to learn from and, and to engage with. So definitely go buy her book. Uh, it was one of the best I've read this year. I really, really enjoyed it. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. So get over there, follow, subscribe, like, share with your friends and people you may think might be interested in the podcast. All the support is uh, much appreciated and really helps. And uh, now I bring you Manu Garcia. I'm here with Manon Garcia. Uh, Manon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. So you've uh, you have a new book. Uh, I think. Let me correct me if I'm wrong. This has been out in certain countries already, and it's coming out in the United States uh, very soon. Yeah, so I'm French. Um, we're probably going to talk about this. And so what I've been doing with my first and my second book is that I write my books first in French, 
And then I translate them and transform them for an English speaking audience. So it came out in French already in 2021. And now it's coming out in English. Okay, very, very, very nice. So you've you've been you've been talking about these uh, uh, topics, and the book has been out for for at least uh, two years now. And so you're going to do a whole another thing. But that, I, that is interesting, kind of translating, I guess, your own work, and then and then trying to reframe it, I guess, for an American audience as opposed to, let's say, a French audience. That has to be very interesting. Yeah, it's actually very close to writing a new book. Oh, I could imagine. So, of course, some some ideas, I mean, the ideas are the same, and mm-hmm. but the way, so, for instance, French people want to read even philosophical books like you would read a detective story. They never want to be told what you're going to, like, what's going to be your conclusion mm-hmm. until you reach the conclusion. They find it extremely boring <laughs> that you would start with saying, I'm going to, my goal is to show X, and then I'm going to do A, B, and C to show you X. An American audience needs to be guided through what you want to show them. And so, like, it completely changes the way, even the way you write a paragraph, because the way you write a paragraph in English is that you put the main idea and then you support it and then you move on to the next idea. In French, it's in France, it's much more that your main idea will come at the end of the paragraph. So it's a completely different way even of thinking. So there's there's the writing aspect of it. And then there is also the fact that I think we're gonna talk about this, but the book is about sexual consent and the way the 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 question of sexual consent is asked in France and in the US is very different. And so actually it's not anecdotal that I'm French and writing it in French and in English, because I think when I wrote this book, so I talk about it in the introduction of the book, but when I wrote the French version of the book, I had been living in the U.S. for seven years and doing my my career as a philosopher in the U.S. for seven years. And so I was, at that point, like a real kind of French-American thinker, you know, like really, I, I, I grew up in France, I did my studies in France, but then I went on to having jobs in the U.S. and to really reshaping my way of doing philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it's in this sort of divided persona between Fran- my French personality, my French being, and, and my American way of life that sexual consent became so interesting for me mm-hmm. because it is a very specific point on which French and Americans don't understand each other. <laughs> and so basically French people think Americans are extremely annoying with their sexual consent. And their focus on sexual consent is the proof that Americans are just bad at sex. And American people think that French people are should maybe be a bit more concerned about sexual consent. <laughs> and so there is this sort of admiration for the French art of love, whatever. But there is also this very big concern about what is going on with these French people having affairs all the time, talking about sex all the time. Do you see it even in Emily in Paris, mm-hmm. right? That it's it's so she's so shocked by how much people talk about sex. And and this is a cliche, but it's true. And so it was interesting for me to be on both sides of this. And because I started being a public intellectual in France, I brought 
the American conversation about sexual consent to France. And I, I gave this interview, it was actually in 2017, where I, well, some people saw me as bringing the idea of affirmative consent to France. Mm. And really, like, some people lost it. They were so mad. They were so mad at me. They were like, because of you, sex is going to be ruined. It's going to be the end of our sex lives. You're bringing American puritanism to us. And I have a, a mentor that I, I really, that was very important for me, even though he was this very macho guy. He wrote a response to my interview where he said something along the lines of, had I asked every partner in my life if they really wanted to have sex with me before having sex with me, maybe I would just have had masturbation as a sex life. And I was like, dude, do you realize that you're writing in, in a public outlet that you, you think at best that your sex life was a misunderstanding? <laughs> between So, yeah, so, so this is where, where my book comes from. Well, I have to say you have a you have such a unique uh, perspective, and I guess it is you've you've written the same book twice, and so I mean it's, it's two different books almost. So that's I wish I I wish I knew uh, French and I could read it in French and kind of do a comparative kind of thing. But that's that's very interesting, and I am I'm sure it will come up, but kind of understanding the the what are the ideas and maybe we'll have like maybe footnotes at different points of like, okay, so here's how I had to change it a little bit or, or, or talk about it for this audience as opposed to this audience. Maybe we'll do that. You've already talked about uh, a little bit, but just kind of uh, close the loop here. Just kind of tell folks your uh, kind of professional background. Uh, you said public intellectual and, and philosophy and things like that, but what is your, I guess your training and, and uh, where do you kind of see yourself now and, and, and what you're doing? So I was trained in France. Um, in France, so that's also interesting. In France, we have a very particular way of doing philosophy. So I was trained as a philosopher, but that meant mostly being trained as a historian of philosophy. So in France, we don't read any, or until, I, I, let's say, when I was a student, we were not reading anything published after 1970. Mm. Where, where it's actually interesting because when you go to grad school in philosophy in the U.S., you barely, well, no, it's not true. You read Plato, etc., but mostly you read things that were published after 1990. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a completely different canon. It's a completely different perspective on what philosophy is. So I was trained up until my doctorate there, but I did a lot of um, research stays in the U.S., so... Um, yeah, I spent some time at UCLA. I spent some time at uh, some time at Hopkins, and during the last two years of my dissertation, well, I didn't know it would be the last two years, but I got a research fellowship to go at, to go work at Tufts with a fantastic philosopher called Nancy Bauer that I absolutely adore and that has been so important for my work. And um, so I worked with her for a year, and then for purely personal reason, I decided to stay because I met the person who's now my husband. And um, I got very lucky. I got a um, visiting stay at Harvard and I was a TF uh, teaching fellow for a lot of classes there. And one thing led to another. It was really not decided like that, but I thought, oh, all my friends are going on the job market. I should try the American job market. And then I got 
one super nice postdoc and then another one and then a third one and then a job at Yale. And um, I, I ended up starting my, my career in the U.S. And so I was an assistant professor uh, at Yale, which was fantastic and really, yeah, I was very lucky. But I got a job offer from um, one of the two biggest universities, well, three biggest universities in Germany, uh, so Freie Universität in Berlin, so the Free University of Berlin. And um, so I moved there last year. So now I'm what they call a junior professor, which is more or less the equivalent of an assistant professor of um, what they call, very interestingly, practical philosophy. So it's um, a very Aristotelian way of seeing the, the world of philosophy. They're theor theoretic philosophy, uh, the yeah, and practical philosophy. So it's so I'm a professor of moral and political philosophy, basically. Nice. That is quite the uh, that's quite the memoir you're putting together. That is quite the arc you have. You have done so many things in such a short time. That's that's fantastic. That really is. So the book we've been referencing is uh, the Joy of Consent: A Philosophy of Good Sex. Uh, uh, it's it's a fantastic book. I, I really liked it, and I will say that you know I read lots of different things, but the one thing that um, I think really stood out, and maybe this is uh, kind of what you've been hinting at here, is of, of how, how balanced it is. It's a very balanced book. Uh, it's not super extreme on one end, or it's not, you know, saying a lot of, you know, things, but really saying nothing. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very good. It's very well thought out, and I found it very balanced. So it was, it was a, a quite a joy to, to, to read. Um, Thank you. That's great to hear. Yes. So, okay, so here's a big question, first big question um, I think that most people want to know is, what is consent? Uh, and, and maybe more specifically, what is sexual consent? Uh, so you can, you know, break it down that, that way. You can talk about consent generally, or you can talk about sexual consent, but how do we typically define it? Uh, and how, how has it become very complicated? So again, if you want, you can, you can how do Americans think about consent and maybe how do the, the French think about sexual consent, but how do we define it? So I think the way that we understand it when we live in the U S is very um, influenced by sexual policies on American campuses. So there is this idea that there are kind of two ways of thinking about consent. There's, no means no. So if you say no to someone uh, that wants to have sex with you, it means you don't want to have sex with them. Or this new thing, new-ish, because now it's been since the 1980s, but called uh, affirmative consent. So only yes means yes. So, but, but deep down, what that means is that we consider that sexual consent is being okay with having sex with someone who wants to have sex with you. But then it becomes so tricky because what does it mean to be okay with having sex with someone? And we see immediately that an intuition that almost everyone has is that consent is mostly something that matters in heterosexual relationships and that needs to be given by women. And so we kind of have this hypothesis that men always want sex and that women kind of most of the time don't, and that they have to stop the guy, you know? And so our way of thinking about sexual consent is how to stop the guy, or did you stop the guy? And 
what I want to show in this book is that it's so much more complicated than that. And that thinking about sex that way is wrong for everyone. And it doesn't lead to good sex. It doesn't prevent sexual violence. Actually, it provides scenarios that encourage sexual violence. And so we should not be thinking about sexual consent that way. Then there is a question that is, can we think about other ways in which we consent in life? And can that help us think about what consent is? So a very basic way we think about consent is what we do when we open our computer or our phone. Every time you go on a website, they ask you, do you consent on the cookies? Do you consent on this? Do you consent on that? And, and if you want to start an iPhone, you need to consent on the Apple policy. So we keep consenting. And so we think, oh, okay, like consenting has to do with contract. It's the way we believe we're um, organizing society. And so we know what consent is. But I think what I want to show, especially at the beginning of the book, is that if we start thinking sexual consent, like we think ticking the box of the Apple policy, we're completely wrong about what's going on. We're completely wrong for, let's say, three reasons. One is that it's a legal approach of what's going on. And so we're basically considering that what is important about sex is to know if you will go to jail when you're having sex. But before that, we should maybe think about, like, are we acting the right way? And so my one of my big theses in the book is to say, we need to stop thinking about sexual consent just in legal terms. Rather, we need to think about it as a moral problem. Like, how do we, how do we have sex with each other? How do we agree to have sex with each other? So that's the first thing. Then, even if we were to have a legal perspective, we're thinking, oh, consent means contract. But actually, when we're thinking about sexual consent, we're not thinking about contract. It's not like... You tell someone that you want to have sex with, okay, like, I'm going to give you sex, and in exchange, you're going to give me that, or I promise I'm going to give you sex in three days. Like, imagine someone who would write a contract and say, I promise I will have sex with you on Friday. This is what a contract is, right? A contract is writing down a promise. You can't tell this person, well, you told me three days ago you, you would be game, and now you're saying you don't want to have sex anymore. And so that's why we can't do contracts about sex. When we think about sexual consent and law, what we're interested in is not contracts, is crime, is to understand how we define if there is a crime or no crime. And so this is not, like, this has nothing to do with contract. It has to do with where some, was someone violated and was someone actively violating someone else? It's not contract. And, my, and the third thing that I think is very important is that we can't think about consent, about sexual consent, like it's any sort of use of our body. It might be the case that someday we'll leave, like I'm not even taking a position on this. It might be the case that somewhere, someday we'll live in a world where having sex with someone is exactly like 
going to the restaurant with this person or going for a hike with this person. But for the time being, we live in a world where sex is given a very specific meaning about intimacy, about vulnerability, about um, our intrinsic value, etc. And so consenting to have sex with someone is putting you in a completely different place than consenting to lend your bike to someone, right? Like it, it might really go wrong. And so it might really go wrong and it might also be life-changingly good. And so what do we do of this experience that can like give you a lot of joy and pleasure, but also really destroy you? How do we think about this? Yeah, so you, you, you mentioned already the, the first, I guess, the two kind of uh, categories, right, of cons sexual consent as uh, a kind of legal contract in which we, how we, that's how we kind of think about it in a lot of ways. And then you make this claim that, I mean, that's one way to look at it, and that's a, one, it's a way that in which people look at it, but then there's also the way in which people look at it, or you could look at it in terms of uh, a moral category. And so... I guess uh, we can use some examples in a minute, but I guess because I want to ask about this idea of power, I want to ask about uh, you know who has who gives and who asks for consent, things like that. But also, the you were kind of alluding to there. What's the kind of contours, right? What's the the the, the edge or the boundary of consent, right? Of how we do this. So, how do you look at this distinction? Um, between kind of legal and moral consent in sexual uh, uh, relations with, with between two people, um, and why another? Why is it important? And how do people do? People already just do that kind of implicitly think about moral consent, or they're just not even thinking of it, of it that way. How do how do we see these these two two uh, distinct categories? So the way I I see it. I think there's no legal rule that doesn't come from moral considerations, right? Like we're, we're defining what is legal and what is illegal based on what we think is right and what we think is wrong. So there is always a moral background of our, our, of our legal um, uh, categories. But what is interesting about our way of thinking legally about sexual consent is that we are thinking about consent as the thing that says if it's good sex or if it's rape. And so we have this sort of binary simplistic view that there are two categories of sex, rape and, and sex period you know so this is a, a lot of people define rape in saying it's sex minus consent mm -hmm. um but you see that this is a, such a weird way of defining sex yes. like it's as if you were saying well giving a gift is um like or or i don't know um yeah giving a gift is stealing but uh it's not illegal or something like that it's it's such a weird view because 
sex and rape are two completely different things. But we sort of think in this in this sort of linear thing where consent is going to be creating a, a, a sort of straight line that says on the left, it's sex. On the right, it's, ra it's rape. And this is our very clear distinction between the two. And I think the problem is that, of course, we want law to be able to do this. It's important that law do, does this. It's important that we decide who goes to prison and who doesn't, right? But by a sort of weird, like, retroaction, it leads us to think that either sex is consented, and it, in that case, it's great, Or it's not consented, and in that case, it's rape. And this is such a flattening of our thinking about what good sex is, about what kind of sex lives we would want to have. And it's kind of telling us, and it's kind of telling us, well, if the sex you're having, you're okay with it, then there's nothing to say about it. You're having good sex. But we all know that you can agree to sex and it can really suck. And so the question is, how do we have a, a better, more subtle um, moral evaluation that is not flattened by this legal apprehension of sexual consent? So, yes, okay, I agree, I agree with you. I guess I'm trying to figure out what's all of the areas in between, right? So we can, we can I think most people can agree Generally, I think it becomes tricky in some ways uh, that if a person says, no, I do not want to have sex with you, and then the person does anyways or attempts to or, or you know, whatever, that that is what we would legally call rape. That's non-consensual sex, yeah. right? Yeah. This is, this is bad. Yes. This is, this there, is terrible. This is terrible. Yes. <laughs> but – But then it gets tricky. But, and, and so if somebody says, yes – I, I, um, I'm into you. Yes, we're vibing well. We go back to my place. Yes, I want to have sex with you. Okay, I do too. Okay. And then two people have sex. Great. And that would be consensual sex, right? And it would be, you know, not, but those are, those are two different things than the qualitative aspect of sex. So you could have consensual sex and it's just terrible. This person was a bad lay. You, you, you've had better, you've had better partners before. Well, that, you know, it, it was totally, you wanted to have it and, and, and it was fine. And, you know, at first, and then it just was qualitatively terrible or it was bad or it wasn't as good as you thought it was going to be or whatever. That doesn't mean it's rape, obviously, but how do we, how do we, <laughs> I guess I guess the question here is is in 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 there's consensual sex and, and non-consensual sex, which which many times is rape. I, I, I don't know if there's any other category for that, but that doesn't get at necessarily the qualitative aspects of sex. So good sex is it is it um, is it not dependent, or can you divorce qualitatively good sex from consensual or non-consensual sex? So that's a question on which a lot of people disagree. And some people say, some, some feminists actually are against or, or are skeptical of the vocabulary of consent because they say, well, it's so little. Like it's, yeah, great. You have consensual sex, but this is such a low bar, you know? 
Um, and, and so we should have another vocabulary, think about de desire, think about pleasure. But I guess my idea, and, and I don't think I make it as clear as that in the book, is that there is a reason why we pay so much attention to consent and sex. And it, and it is such that consent plays a role in the qualitative um, dimension of sex. What I mean by that is that you see that there are also very different ways of consenting. We talked about the no means no, or only yes means yes. But you can also, but, but you know how conservatives sometimes mock the campus policies in saying, oh yeah, now it's not even yes means yes. It's like, you need to say yes every time you change position. You need to say, but like, I kissed you on the mouth, but without the tongue, but are you also okay? It was me kissing you with the tongue, etc. This sort of mocking of affirmative consent. And so this is another level, right? Like um, doing affirmative consent with like every was making sure constantly that the person is okay with what's going on. Is this also known but as then, uh, radical consent? This is another term I've heard as well. Maybe it's a similar, yeah. synonymous so thing for affirmative consent or something like that. Yeah. I think there are so many, <laughs> like people disagree on because there, there are so many like very subtle distinctions, uh -huh. Uh -huh. but then there is a question there's something that I find interesting is that even if you think about yes means yes and asking again and again, you could imagine a situation of two people having sex and what is like, are you like, do you, are you okay with me doing this to you? And other is like, yes. And they proceed. And then they say, are you okay with me turning you around and doing this? And the other is like, Yes you see that this is not what we have in mind when we think of people saying yes to each other. Like we, and, and so it leads people who write all these consent policies to use like 15 adjectives, that it needs to be affirmative consent, that is repeated, that is enthusiastic, that is verbal, that is this, that is that, because what we're trying to hold on to is how is consent linked to good sex and I think that's the core of my book is to say we've been especially since the beginning of the Me Too movement etc thinking about sexual consent of only as a, a distinction between sex and rape and of telling us what is bad sex basically but deep down what we hope from consent that it can also tell us what is good sex. And we have the intuition that there is something about consent that is central to the qualitative aspect of sex. And this is what I'm trying to... So I'm trying to hold this, this, this intuition and to put it in conversation with all the feminist work about the multiple ways in which sex can go wrong. So the question I'm having here is uh, threefold. So, <laughs> right, that's how my brain thinks in like three parts all the time, two or three, four parts. First is, I guess, about power. 
I guess about second, the responsibility. So who has responsibility? Who, you know, who has power? And then kind of, uh, I would say inextricably linked with those two concepts in, in a sexual context is this idea of individual difference, right? So if somebody has most adults, uh, you know, at, at a certain age have had multiple sexual partners, not all, just plenty of people have only had one partner, but many have had multiple sexual partners at different points in their life. And most people will know that it's always different with everybody. And it's always different, not even just for sexual affinities, but just how, how, how they talk about sex, if they talk about sex and in the moment, outside of the moment. But I guess these ideas of, you know, if we take a kind of general, uh, kind of your standard norms, you know, a, you know, a heterosexual relationship between a male and a female. Of course, there are obviously different types of sexual relationships. But if we take that uh, example for a minute, it does seem um, that there is this space where the man is asking right kind of a, a giving giving up of their power or or a, allowing the woman to have power etc you know these are uncomfortable ways to say it but that's the kind of the general way of which i think people think of it and then also that there's this responsibility that the person is supposed to say i'm not okay with this or i'm okay with having sex with you but i'm not okay with you flipping me around and doing whatever right like there's there's so it's like yes generally we can have sex and i'm cool with that but in terms of preferences in the moment, well, I'm not okay with that, or I'm very okay with this. And it does seem that in, in terms of stereotype gender roles, it is the male asking, the, the female in this example, you, you know, is this okay? Is this not, not okay, et cetera? And then the, 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 the female saying uh, yes or no, a kind of a thumbs up or thumbs down. And I'm sure maybe there are other contexts where maybe the that's revert the woman's asking the guy and the guy says no or yeah it's whatever. But so I I can imagine this stuff is complicated because it's going to you have two individuals and those two individuals are two individuals, right? If that one person goes and has sex with three other people later, you know, that month, you're going to get different variants of what people are okay with in terms of consent. So how do we have uh how do I say this? How do we have a moral baseline if we do in terms of sexual consent for these things? Because it, it's going to be different. And how do we how do we how, how do how do people not say, well, well, this person has all the responsibility. If they didn't ask, then it's their fault. Or the opposite, right? You know, I, I asked and they didn't respond or, or they shouldn't have to ask. There's all these nuances with it. And I guess how do we have a kind of moral baseline of sexual consent is kind of what I'm asking. <laughs> well, you just asked 15 I know, I asked questions, a million questions that are, that, are, that are very good, but I don't know if I'm going to manage to um, respond to all of them at once, but you'll... Um, Go ahead. Just, just start with what comes to the top. Yeah. So... I think you're onto something very interesting when you say thumbs up, thumbs down, because I think that's kind of our representation of consent mm -hmm. that 
the man is going to propose, the woman has to say thumbs up or, or thumbs down. And actually, very often, it's not thumbs up or thumbs down to certain practices. It thumbs up, up, thumbs up or down to sex. Yeah. And so it's as if, you know, you were like having a, a highway ticket or something like that. You go on the highway and we know what's going to happen. And so that's very interesting because... People, sometimes when I say this, people are like, really? no, I don't think that's true. But then you can think of so many sexual practices that everyone would agree, even the guys that are the least into consent, that one would need to ask about doing that before doing that. Mm -hmm. And so we, we know that like there is something where you've asked to have sex. And that means that. That means penetrative sex of a vagina by a penis up until the guy have, has had an orgasm. And so that's what I find very interesting is that when we start saying this, we see how many gender roles are involved, gender norms, and patriarchal views about men and women sexuality. Because I'm pretty sure that you know that A, it happens that men don't want to have sex. B, it happens that women are the ones, the, the one wanting to have sex or wanting to offer sex. And C, like there are multiple other ways of having sex than a penetration of a penis with a of a vagina by a penis. And so it seems like it's anecdotal, but it's actually very interesting because imagine a woman who would go to a party, it happens way more actually in the US than it would happen in France, who would go to a party and who would go see a guy that she finds hot and say, just in case you wonder, for me to say yes. People would be like, what is she doing? And so it actually happened to me when I, when I was um, a, a young student and I went for one year uh, to UCLA. I, my best friend there was French as well. And he was this not typically attractive guy in France but he was teaching French at UCLA and having a French accent and so all the undergrads they were crazy about him and I don't know like he had a charm like this very French charm I don't know so it happened twice that year that we would be at in a bar or something and that a, a woman would come and would say do you want me to go give you oral sex in the bathroom and my friend said it's so crazy. In like my whole life, I dreamt that something like that would happen to me. But when it did happen, it felt so weird that I said no. Because it's so like, it's so against our scripts that a woman would express desire. So especially desire of giving oral sex to someone she doesn't know, etc. But a guy who would go up to a woman in a bar and say, um, would you be down for me to like fuck you in the bathroom? People would find it perfectly normal. And so the, the woman might say no and, and is very likely to say no, actually, statistically, but everyone thinks it's normal. Mm. And so the question is how, do, how consent is carrying those narratives about what is normal sex, what is good sex, what sex looks like, et cetera. And then you talked about power and responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I think that is 
a core thing of what's happening and of my critique of sexual consent is that, as you said very nicely, we always think that consent is happening between two people, that it's just like these two people. And so that's why we think about contract. That's why we think legally, etc. We abstract these two people from everything else. We say, well, it's two people, they meet. We have this sort of um, Tinder version, you know, in our heads. It's like two people, they're free of every um, connection with other people and they just decide if yes or no, they want to have sex. But this is not how it works. One very simple way of seeing that it's not how it works is to look at the studies that show how many women consent to sex out of fear of being raped. It's an enormous uh, part of of what women of of women accepting sex. They're like in a situation where they feel like if they say no, they might be forced into it. And so they say yes. And so why why does that happen? Not because this guy looked weird, it looks weird to them, but because they know that men in general can have a tendency to take a no very badly and to resort to violence in front of a no. So this is one thing. Another thing, another example is um, people who have sex out of politeness. And so I really like this story because the first time I thought about this in those terms, I thought, okay, I'm going to ask my girlfriends and my guy friends if they've ever had sex out of politeness. And of uh -oh. course, like this is uh -oh. not sociological work. <laughs> uh oh, yeah. And so all of my girlfriends were like, duh, like, of course, you know, it's like everyone has sex out of politeness, etc. Oh, no. And my guy friends, they had no idea what I was talking about. They, they didn't know. They were like, oh, you mean when you love someone and they want to have sex? And so you're like, I'm not really in the mood tonight, but I'm going to have sex with you. Like, no, this is sex out of love. This is another problem. I'm talking about having sex because you feel like the person really tried and you kind of have to because maybe this is not nice to say no or maybe you're going to be seen as a tease. And like guys, straight guys especially, they have no idea about this category. And really straight women all know what it is. And so what I mean by those anecdotes, because really my, my, this is an anecdote, like this has no sociological value or anything. <laughs> but what I mean by this is that there are always other people in the room, i.e. the society, when two people are having sex. And so there are power relations that have nothing to do with those two specific people. For instance, if you're a black guy in the US and you're about to hook up with a white woman, you know that you really should be very careful because the likelihood, if she says that you didn't respect her consent, you're going to go straight to jail. And so there are all these things, there are all these vulnerabilities, all these power relations that are happening in the, the bedroom, assuming that sex is, have, is being had in the, be, in the bedroom. Uh, but um, that, like, there are a lot of other people than those two people having sex. And so our way of thinking about sex in this legal, with this legal prospect is completely missing these power dynamics that are going on.
And these power dynamics are very influential on the question of who's responsible for what. Because to take again my example, if you're a white guy and you know that um, it's very likely that the woman knows that if you're if she accuses you of rape, she's not going to be taken seriously. Like, you know, let's take the example of Brock Turner, you know, the swimmer from Stanford who was take, caught in the act of raping Channel Miller on the, on the campus. Like, even if he was caught in the act, people were giving him the benefit of the doubt. So imagine when you're not caught in the act. Like, if you're this, ki- this kind of, like, the jock that is loved by everyone, etc. You know that this woman knows that she can't really say no. And so the question is, what is your responsibility when you want to have sex with a woman to take that into account? Because, of course, if, if you know, like, let's take the example of the white woman with the black guy. The white woman with the black guy, if she is rational, which not everyone is, would know that she's not risking much by um, being in a bedroom with a black guy because he knows he has a lot to lose. And so she could just go with the flow and have sex with him because the likelihood that he's not going to pay attention to every cue that she's going to give is very low. But if you're with the, like super fancy quarterback that everyone loves in your bedroom, meaning he's strong, he's popular, he's white, he's in a position of power, etc. It it can be the case that your only way of saying no is to just be like, yeah. And this yeah is as strong a no as you can say. Mm. Um, And so that means that depending on on our social power, we have different responsibilities in making consent happen. And, and that leads me to, to a connected point, which is that I think we need to think very, we need to really take the time to think about who is really responsible, the person who has to utter consent or the person who has to hear the consent. And I think what I want to do in this book is to flip the responsibility in saying the responsibility is from the person, it's it's mostly of the people receiving the consent, Mm -hmm. of making sure they create conditions in which they can receive Mm non-consent. Yeah, see, so this is is my intuition uh, as well, which is, I think of, I think of, Two, two two parts of this, which is one, many people will say, well, I mean, in this scenario, you know, why wouldn't the woman just say, no, I don't want to have sex? Why would you do that out of politeness? That's stupid. Don't do that. Just say, no, you don't want to have sex. Or if you're already, you know, in, in the moment and you're saying, you know, I hate to do this, but, you know, I'm just not feeling it, you know, whatever, whatever. And they say they don't want to anymore, even if they already gave consent. They change their mind. People change their mind all the time. 
Um, they could not feel well. It doesn't even have to be because they don't like the guy or, or whomever. They just, they just, maybe they don't feel well. Maybe, maybe, you know, who, who, who knows? And I think that that's fair. It's a f- somewhat fair criticism to say, yes, people should be able to speak for themselves to say, I do or do not want something. I think that's fair. But the flip side of that coin <laughs> is just what you said. There has to be an environment in a space where the other person that's receiving the no or the changing of the mind is not going to be threatening or posturing or manipulative or, you know, it, it, look, that's, that's just how it is. Maybe, maybe it's an L for that night or whatever. And that's fine. Like, <laughs> you, you, you live to see another day and, you know, maybe, maybe it happens next time or whatever. And that's, that happens. Like, that happens. Um, and I feel like that's also needed as well, because I think the reality of many situations is what you, what you, what you laid out there, which will be probably, unfortunately, a common story for many people is, well, if I say no, I don't know what will happen. There's a question mark there, or, you know, I feel a little bit of pressure. So there is some of the societal stuff for sure. But I think ideally, I think what we should shoot for, and I think you do talk about this in your book, is I think the responsibility is on both people, right? On the one hand, yes, the person kind of uh, uh, positioning for, for sex or saying, hey, let's, let's, you know, do you want to or whatever. They, you can't read some – if somebody says yes, but it's a yes out of politeness or it's a yes out of, well, you know, what if they don't talk to me again or if it's – you know, no one's going to read someone's mind. However. I think there has to be a space of, okay, I mean, this might be a strange, impractical thing to say, but like, well, yes, but what if it was a no? <laughs> we were like, well, that would be fine. Or it'd be like, well, no, then I'm going to make sure it happens. Like, who's going to answer that honestly? But there should be an, an environment or a space where somebody's able to say, no, I don't want to, or no, I'm not okay with that. Um, whether it's beforehand, kind of that thumbs up, thumbs down generally, or even in the moment where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not okay with any of this. But I think that there's what it sounds like in different environments is there's a lot of trepidation. There's a lot of fear on sometimes both parties' uh, sides of things. You know, in the stereotype example, the woman feels, you know, maybe nervous because she doesn't know what will happen. And the same for the guy sometimes will say... I don't know what could happen. I don't want them to say something that didn't happen or maybe I misread something. And and then look, let's be honest. You're talking about good sex here. The last thing you want to have good sex is to be all in your head (laughs) and you're just trying to let it flow. And like, you just can't do that if you're all in your head about things. So, I mean, how does that sit with you? How does it make sense? What I'm saying? So it makes sense, but I think, where I'm not sure I'm following you is on the guy's part of the scenario you're talking about, which is that I think the problem is that it doesn't happen enough that men don't have sex because they're not absolutely sure that the person who wants to have, who's having sex with them or who's about to have sex with them really wants to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem is that we encourage guys to think, well, women are, like there is this sort of idea that comes also from Christianism, from Christianity, etc., that virtuous women mm-hmm. will never 
say that they want sex. Right. And, and so that women will never really want sex. At best, you will obtain sex out of them, maybe because they want love, maybe because this and, and that. But so there is this sort of cultural idea that sex is a misunderstanding, is something that you, you conquered out of the woman who initially didn't want it. And so men think of themselves or are, are taught to think of themselves as hunters and conquerors who obtain sex kind of even if the woman was not really into it. So this is what a lot of people call well, rape culture, but we have all these myths, you know, and you see it. I mean, I'm not the first one to talk about this. Like when you watch old James Bond or or this kind of movies, like it's always, she didn't want it. She's like, oh, no, no, no. And then she's like, oh, James. Right, right. You know, like it's, it's she's going to say no, but eventually she's going to yield. And, and this is because she really wants it. So we have these representations. And I think that's, that's very important. And, and, and that's something we need to think about when we think about having sex out of politeness. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just that women are very polite people is that men insist. Mm -hmm. And so very often when you have sex out of politeness, it's because you showed in many different ways that you were not really down and the guy kept asking. And so at some point you feel like he worked really hard for this or like he must be very lonely or this or that, you know, or he's really trying. Mm -hmm. And so, it comes sex out of politeness comes from the guy not having not having taken taken the cues of non-consent beforehand of and and we've all seen guys at parties or things like that that try and try again and try again and eventually it works and you're and and everyone is like oh wow like I thought he was being an asshole, but it worked in the end. So maybe she wanted it. And I think we need to flip the thing and think maybe she just felt like she could not not want it anymore. And I think this is, this is something that happens very often. Um, But, but, but sorry, how do we, how do we, how do we change that? Like, I mean, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. I don't understand how we change like that, you know, that cultural mindset of things, right? Like in my mind, I mean, I I mean, I don't, I don't want to be minimizing, but like, it seems in some way simple. It's like both people want to have this. If they don't, then you respect it. And that's it. Like it's just not, I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am minimizing. I I understand it's very complicated, but it's like, you want the person to, to, the, the woman should have the guy's, idea again in a stereotyped way should have to the woman should get pleasure and the guy should get pleasure and both people are satisfied with how they've pleased each other and they've enjoyed it the whole time like that's that's if none of that is happening at any point then it's just done it's done for the night or it's done for the week or it's done for the, and that's it right this shouldn't be that difficult but i and i understand <laughs> it is and i'm not trying to minimize it but that's the idea right is like two people enjoying giving each other pleasure no Yes, of course. But, you know, when you say, even when you you say this, like two people giving each other pleasure, I think it's very interesting to think about what we have in mind when we say this. Because 
I think there's this relatively new vision that is brought about by the apps and especially by the apps like Tinder or Grindr on which you go really to have sex, where sex becomes a negotiation, Mm -hmm. you know, where people, you're, you're like, okay, like, I'd be down to have sex. I have two hours in front of me. I would like to do this, this, and that. And you could do this, this, and that, or I could do this, this, and that to you. And I think in some cases, it's not always the case, but there is this sort of understanding of sex as um, an optimization of your pleasure of like, you're going to say, okay, I have that much time in, in that time. Like I'm, I'm, organizing everything so that nothing that was not planned could happen, you know, and that I'm saying, I want to take this and this pleasure and in exchange for it, I'm ready to give this and that pleasure. And there's something really weird there because we're led to believe that it's a form of weakness to give pleasure and that this is a time you're not spent giving pleasure or uh, that is not spent giving pleasure or that it's a form of uh, you you need to make sure that you don't give too much pleasure to the other person compared to what you're going to get. And it's as if we're not getting pleasure from giving pleasure. And so I think this model is also completely wrong about what it is to have sex with someone when you're really like in a sexual relation with that person. But I wanted to come back on one thing you said about the um, how hard can it be to say no? Like I, I know you didn't you didn't present it that way. You were way more um, subtle than this. But this is an idea that we have. You know, it's like with the a, a common a, a, um, comparable thing is what we think about uh, battered wives, where we're like, why don't you just leave? You know, and and so there's something about, especially about like rape where we're like why didn't you say no if the person hasn't said no and it's something I even wondered um and I stumbled upon fantastic research that really opened my eyes about this which is linguists that have shown that in life we never say no and that when people offer that we do something with them you never say no. If if a colleague of yours tells you, hey, like, we'd love to have you over for dinner Saturday night, you would never say uh, no. Mm-hmm. You're going to say, like, even if it's your most annoying colleague and you really hate their guts, you can say, oh, wow, that's so nice of you. Well, bummer. Like, we have this thing every Saturday. Like, so, so, so often you're going to say, this Saturday we can't. But if you know that the person is really annoying, you can try to find a way that they never invite you ever again. But, but even if you really hate the person, you will never just say no. This is, this contradicts every possible rule of human interaction to just say no. You need to, every invitation need to be refused by not saying no. And and this is valid for everyone. But if you add to this the way women are socialized to be people pleaser, when a woman like refuses something, they never ever say no. And so it was funny, I, I gave a few 
like talks to managers about this because it's proven that on the in the workplace it's very problematic because women do not say no when they mean no and especially when you have sort of like super broy white guys that are like let's go etc and they're like yeah another idea that i might have is this this or that or you know for me as a philosopher it was so funny when i arrived in the u.s because i i was giving talks in feminist groups etc and i was like they keep telling me it's great but at the same time i feel like they're not saying it's great the same way they say it's great to other people. And so it took me so much time to understand that there was criticism sometimes packed into the whole, thank you so much for your talk. This was fascinating, etc. I I really learned a lot. I have just one little question, but someone can really say this and in their just one little question explain to you that your entire talk is shit. <laughs> and so you really need to learn to, to listen, to pay attention. Or, you know, I was, uh, for instance, I had a, a nanny share for my kids with a family that I really adore, but the mom of that family is a very good Southern girl. You know, she was raised to be a very good Southern girl. And I'm French. So French people say no out of principle to everything. And then they can discuss. And her, out of principle, she would never say no. And and she would, like, to understand that she was really upset about something, she would just say, oh, yeah, I thought about this. It, it was not that cool. And it, it took me a month to learn to yeah. hear mm-hmm. how her nose were formulated. And so the question is, how is it that I see this and a lot of guys don't, Mm -hmm. you know? And so how, what kind of attention should we pay to who people are and to their circumstances to understand what their words mean? And this is, so what worries me is that I feel like a lot of people are very good at doing that. And then when it comes to sex, they're like, oh, no, I'm like, I don't know. Like, she should say no if she doesn't want to. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. It, you know, like, I don't know if it was the case in, in the U.S. Um, when you were growing up. when But when I was growing up in France, there was this these constant jokes about women who were like starfish in bed, you know, like uh, meaning, so maybe you use another image to talk about women that are just like lying on the mattress, yeah. not yeah, moving. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was a thing, you know, to talk about women who were bad in bed, etc. Mm-hmm. They're like starfish. And, and now retrospectively, I'm like, this is just non-consent. Mm-hmm a woman who doesn't move on the mattress for the entire duration of sex. But why is it that we as a society were taught to learn about this as just women who suck Mm -hmm. at sex or, well, suck is not a very good word in that context, but um, (laughs) you you see what I mean? Like 
There's a question about all these cultural narratives Mm -hmm. about who does what and what we can hear and what we can see. And, you know, and and so in that regard, imagine the progress between, I don't know, your parents and my parents' generation and ours. Mm -hmm. Like in my parents' generation, this question of looking at if the woman really wanted what was going on, it was just not really a question. Yes, I, I. So I'm glad you 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 clarified that because I, I think that's super important. So I, I totally totally resonates with me. I mean, I I talk to many people every day, and I have this conversation. So let me take it out of a what kind of going back on what you said uh, in a in a in a in a um, in a work setting. I will talk with people all the time in a, in in my clinical practice and stuff of in the United States. It's so hard for for many people, uh, many women, to not say no, to not be you know uh, oppositional, or you know, or in the reverse, to to ask for things that they should have. And and I will work with people clinically. So why is it hard to put a boundary? Like why is it hard to to say no? Well, I might get fired. Really? Is that really going to happen? I mean, I think in some situations um, that that has been the case, and that's preposterous. But I think in a lot of places, I totally agree with you. There's this kind of, you know, Christianized, Puritan kind of like what you're saying. This this like culture we have of like you don't say no. You're just highly agreeable. And here's the thing. And here's the thing that I really, you know, kind of push against as much as I can. I mean, it's not always my fight as a, as a guy, but is. There will be certain types of name calling and and certain types of uh, slander towards women that do say no, or you know, oh she's the bitch, or oh she's real, you know, X Y Z. She's so bossy. She's really and, bossy, yeah. or you know, even even sometimes you know, oh she's too sassy or things like that. And in my mind, it's like no, it's just an individual person saying I don't want to do that, and I have respect for myself, and I have respect for. For, for what my limits or my boundaries are, we shouldn't demean that. We shouldn't d- discourage that. I mean, again, I mean, there's variance with this, but I even think some people will will do that kind of subtle thing of like, well, this the way this person came out or how they presented themselves was unprofessional or something like that. And certainly, that there is a space for that. I think that's a very tricky gray area for sure. But I think a lot of the times it's just like, no, if somebody says, I'm not going to work 78 hours this week, I'm only going to work 60, I think that's fine. So I think, and I think people should do that. We should encourage people to do that. But it is very, it's a, it's a, it is, I have seen that it's an unlearning. It's an unlearning, uh, especially for, in, in, in many cases for, for women, this way of, of thinking or, or always apologizing for things. And I happens to say, like, you don't have to apologize. It's fine. You didn't do anything. And I think that that's a hard thing culturally and as a society. But so I, I totally agree in a, in a sexual context, it, it does make sense. But I wonder, like I said initially, the, the aim and the goal is, is that you could say that. You could say, no, I don't want to do this or no, I'm not enjoying this. I don't want to do it. It is, I, I agree with you. I wish it wasn't the case, but it, it is very difficult, and I and I wonder. Um, I don't know. I don't know any of the, the the data here, but I wonder how much of this is 
yes, there'd be a lot of terrible men out there, but I wonder how many other men would be like, okay, that's fine. Like, if you don't want to, that's okay, or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what that ratio looks like, how that is, how you do that kind of qualitative Yeah, but imagine, service. so I think, what, what is the, the figures in the U.S. is like a third of American women will experience sexual violence in their lives. Oh, yeah, it's very like high. Yeah, it's very high. Um, and yeah, and so, and so you imagine the likelihood actually that something go wrong goes wrong at some point when you say no. It's, it's more likely. It's more likely than the opposite of something going right of, of sorts. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, no. I think I think you're right that there are a lot of good guys out there, and and that. Um, but. I think it's very important to go back to this question of saying no, because mm -hmm. there are different problems. There's one problem, which is the fact that women don't say no very explicitly. Mm -hmm. And then there was a, a very interesting study that was done because for the longest time, we, it was thought that a part of sexual violence was the result of misunderstandings and that, um, and there are interesting studies like that, like uh, studies about they, they sent people out on dates and then they asked the guys if they got the green light to like spend the night together. And then they asked the woman if she gave that green light during the, yeah, <laughs> the, oh, the date. And like the statistics are not Oof, good. You not know, good, it's like yeah. a lot of guys, think and and you know sometimes it's really like women were not interested whatsoever but they were just being nice and the guy was like i'm scoring tonight baby you know mm -hmm. like so there's that but then there were a lot of other studies that were done showing dates to both men and women and asking them like is, like is this person consenting or not consenting etc and there, there was no gender difference. Men were perfectly able to identify when women were not giving their consent. Mm. And so it seems like the problem is not so much that men are unable to identify this or that women don't express mm. their uh, consent well enough, is that men are taught that anything short of a big hard stop in your face, mm -hmm. you can go over it, yeah. Yeah. you know, and that will make you a seductor and a, a, a hot guy that triumphed over the resistance of that woman, etc. And that actually it is okay to overlook all of this or to not care that the person is not really into it. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that is, very hard for the good guys of our generation to learn to learn that that might mean that they will have way less sex nice. and that um it is not something that is owed to them so i think it's it's a broader problem of feminism right that this new kind of order we're trying to build of gender equality it means that you have to give up on a lot of things when you're a guy. And so I think one of the things that guys have to give up on 
is free access to sex, free access to sex when they're in a relationship, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, like all the stories we hear of, you know, these guys that just came back from the pub or something and just like had sex with their wives and their wives were asleep and or didn't want to, etc. Like the sort of idea that, you know, wives are annoying to say that they have a headache tonight or, and, and there are multiple variation of this. Like I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very grossed out to be honest by the fact that, so my Instagram, um, uh, algorithm shows me a lot of parents of young kids material. So a lot of things about how annoying toddlers are, etc. But a lot of the of those reels are about how the moment you finally got the kids to sleep, your husband is jumping you and you're gonna have to find ways to let him understand that you're really, really tired right now. And so you see, like, there are, I don't know, I, there are hundreds and thousands of those videos that show how these women take care of their kids the whole day, make dinner, clean up, put the kids to sleep, do bath time, etc. And I mean, I have young kids. The moment my kids go to sleep, I'm exhausted and sure, defeated. Sure, sure. And if my husband was jumping on me on the couch being like, now it's your time to take care of me every single night. You know, like, of course, guys need to give up on this idea that it's an open bar, that your wife is an open bar for everything, you know? And so it's hard. And a lot of them are not really ready to give up. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's very fair. I was going to, I was going to ask you about that of, We've been talking in a kind of dating context, but uh, you know, single people or you know, dating. But I think it's a it's an even more complicated <laughs> arena of people that are cohabitating or their partners or they're married. That's a whole, and you're you're illustrating this point is even or sometimes especially in a committed relationship or in a marriage, it's not you know open season of just whenever. But the point, but the point of what you're saying there, it's still kind of the same, right? Is it? I mean, of course, some people might want to, or they might be in the mood, and somebody might not, and that can go both ways. But it should be: do both people want it? And I think you're right. If people, if one person doesn't, well, I mean, either you got to take care of yourself or something, or you're just not going to that night or whatever. But it's it's something where it's like, listen. If this person doesn't want it or they're not there, then 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 that's not that's not necessarily what what I want, right? I mean, I think that that can be there's a mutual mutuality of that of how do how do both people here want it? And, and so one of the things that you 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 talk about kind of towards the end of the book, which is you talk about sexual intersubjectivity, which I think is this is borrowing from uh, De Beauvoir, right? Is this or she kind of has these kind of these concepts. But you talk about sex, you know, consent is not the best tool of fighting sexual violence, but you talk about how do we see sex as, you know, a kind of conversation, right? Where you can have freedom and autonomy, autonomy and, and some kind of liberation for people. So how, I guess to, to, to kind of end things here, how do you think about um, sexual consent? Like what, what, is, what is in your mind, again, not that you're going to be the oracle and tell us the way to do it, but what is a, a, a kind of way in which it can look 
positive and um, consensual and really, you know, I think, you know, as, as, as the subtitle is, you know, for having good sex between two, two, uh, two partners. So I think um, I'm not going to have a very hard time convincing you of this, but I think people should talk to each other. Yes, <laughs> I think talking talk is, a, is a very important skill to have. And, and that's my idea of talking about sex as conversation. So what I have in mind is to say, we're going on a path of conceiving of sex as negotiation. And I think it's certainly better than a lot of other paths, but it's still a bit short of what good sex is because that presupposes that we're isolated, um, utility-maximizing individuals, like selfish individuals that just want what is best for us, etc., and that there to to use the vocabulary of economists that there is no externality, that the way we behave towards each other in sex has no consequence for us in the rest of our lives, or for our partners, or for society as a whole. And I think that's not true. I think the biggest problem we have about sex is a problem of illiteracy. We don't know how to talk about sex. We're not taught how to talk about sex, and we're not taught how to think about what we want sexually. And I think it's very striking. I use sociological uh, work on this uh, in my book, but it's very it's a problem because we are not, especially for young people, for instance, young people don't have a conversation with with parents or grown-ups at some point who tell them, well... Sex is complicated, sex is messy, but there are many reasons why you want or you may want or not want to have sex. These are like usually the best you can get from your parents is the talk about using condoms, right? This is an extremely awkward talk and everyone wants to have it only once and then never talk about this ever again. But the reality is that sex is a part of who we are and it's a part of how we interact with others and how we know our body and how we know what we want in life. And it is by having sex with people that we get clearer of what we want from sex, what we like in sex, what we don't like in sex, etc. But it is also with talking to the people we're having sex but also talking to ourselves in a way about what we think is going on, that we get better at sex. There is a sort of discursive process of knowing yourself as a sexual human being through discussing it. And so I think it's interesting to think of sex as a conversation because it also shows a, a sort of emancipatory possibility of consent, which is, I think, if we understand consent not as just saying yes or saying no or something like that, but as an, a necessity of talking with the people we have sex with about what we're doing, we are like we're paving the way for becoming better at hearing what people are saying about what they want from sex, at knowing what we want from sex ourselves, 
and it's a sort of you get better at it. You get a better you it's like the more you converse, the more you talk with people, the, the more you learn the right vocabulary to talk with people, the more you you learn how a good conversation is supposed to go, the more you know how to pay attention to people to make them feel really heard and to build things with them, etc. So that's why that's one of the reasons why I think the model of the conversation is very interesting. But I think it's also interesting because it allows us to see, to, to dilute individuality. Because good sex, at the end of the day, is sex in which the sex itself matters more than each individual taken separately. Mm. And it's like, it's the difference between a dialogue and a conversation. When you talk about a dialogue, you talk about two people. In a conversation, you talk about the object that these two people are creating together. And so in talking about, in, in conceiving of sex as a conversation, I want people to understand this, that we need to dilute individuality in sex rather than like trying to maximize our individuality like in the model of negotiation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would you, would you also agree that talking is not only with words, right? It can be nonverbal as well. So there's a kind of, there's an almost, I mean, I think there is whether people recognize or not, but maybe in having more of an insight into this phenomenological experience of what it is to have between two people that you're creating out of that, right? That it's not that, of course, people are going to come with their own individual affinities, the other person with their individual affinities, but together through talking verbally and non-verbally, you're creating a, a, a type of experience with both people there. It's not just for one person or the other. And ideally, you, you're you going to learn things, hopefully, but it should be, hopefully, qualitatively positive and, and, a, and, a, and a conversation that you continue to kind of, you know, foster to, to, to improve and, and to, to, to be better. Is, is, is this true? Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're, you're, um, you're pointing at a very important aspect of considering of consent as a conversation is the time aspect. So there are, there are different ways in which there is a time aspect of it. First of all, if you think of consent and of sex as a conversation, you understand that it doesn't stop, like consent doesn't stop the moment you've given it at the entrance of sex mm-hmm. in a certain way, but that there are multiple temporalities of consent. There's like the way you say yes when things start, but also the way you um, communicate how you feel during and also, one thing that is very important, what people in the BDSM world called aftercare, call aftercare, which is the way you talk after mm-hmm. sex about the sex that was that happened and how you felt about it, etc. And also how this way of conversing during that sexual relation is going to have impacts later on on your other sexual relations with other people or with the same person and on how you're gonna be in the world by having had these conversations and so i think for instance it's very interesting how one of the very big conservative concern about sexual consent is to say oh nowadays sexual consent allows you 
to say you were raped when the next day you have regrets about what happened. You know, like you were drunk, you were at a frat party, like after six shots of tequila, this guy looked like a good decision. And the next day you're like, oops, he's actually really ugly. I shouldn't have done that. Supposedly you're going to say that you were raped. And I think no one ever does that or very rarely, but I think what is interesting is to recognize that there can be sex that is consented to when it happened, that is when it, when it happens. But then the next day you're like, did I really want this? Like you, you or, or a few weeks later. And so it's not that a few weeks later, you're going to accuse this person of having raped you, but that, if you can see it, conceive of con, uh, consent as a conversation, it should be possible three weeks later to talk and say, you know what, I know I was down I, and I said I was down when we were doing it. But when I think back on it, I think I was actually not really down and you could have seen it by this, this and that sign. You could have helped me that way. And so that's how we learn, right, about having sex with each other and making sex better and and tell and it has to be the case that you can tell someone through three weeks later retrospectively i think i was not really okay with what happened without this person thinking you're accusing them of rape and so this sort of simplistic vision of sexual consent that we have that if we say something was not consented then it means it was rape it prevents all these conversations, right? Yeah. I think it's, uh, well, it's like any conversation, right? It's sometimes they're difficult. Sometimes we think one thing and we change. And so that's, that's the, the, the challenge. But I think the necessary thing with, with conversations. The book is called The Joy of Consent, A Philosophy of Good Sex. Uh, this is out October 3rd. I have this right? Yeah. yeah. And, um, where is the, the best places to find you or the book or any place you want to point people to? So I think uh, any like book platform should have it. Don't hesitate to pre-order if you hear it before. But in any case, like you can order it from your local bookstore. That's great. That's better for them. And that usually costs more or less the same price. And I will be um, doing um academic tour in the U.S. in October. Um, so you can look at my Twitter account. All the dates will be there. And some of the talks are public mm -hmm. and open to the public. And I would love to see some of your listeners there. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's always fun to, to get out and see people live and in the flesh. Um, this was such a delight. I was really much looking forward to the conversation and uh, did not disappoint uh, thinking through very important issues. And so it's, uh, it's a big honor to have uh, chatted with you. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful. Thank you very for much for having me on your podcast. Of course. Of course. Thank you so much. Bye.